Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. This is episode 22, and my guest today is Sarah Green Carmichael. She's a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review, as well as the host of their weekly podcast, The HBR IdeaCast. Sarah has done a lot of work in the areas of gender and bias, specifically looking at communication and leadership. And that's the topic of our discussion today. So here it is, my interview with Sarah Green Carmichael. Well, I am super excited to welcome into today's podcast, Sarah Green Carmichael, a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review and host of the HBR IdeaCast. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I am so grateful to have you here today because I've learned so much from your work. But for those who may not be familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your work and its context? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a senior editor at HBR. I edit a lot of material for the website, hbr.org, as well as hosting our weekly podcast. Uh, A lot of what I do is focused on strategy and leadership. And then within the context of leadership, a lot of what I've been editing for the past few years has had to do with uh, psychology, bias, um, various sort of cognitive biases, Dan Ariely type stuff. People know that that name. And a lot of that has had to do actually with gender bias as well. So it's been sort of a fun uh, opportunity to develop a little specialty around some of those topics. Well, I, I like I said, I've learned so much from your work, both through HBR and through your social media accounts. So I thought it might be a good way to start by asking you about your own experiences. Is there a specific time that you can think of or maybe times in general where for better or for worse, gender has been front and center for you and communicating and leading? Uh, yes, definitely. You know, sometimes it's, I think, frankly, uh, been for better. I've had some opportunities because of my gender, um, which I, you know, earlier in my career, uh, for instance, I was a sports writer before I joined HBR many years ago. And I was explicitly told, you know, we'd love to have a woman on a sports page. At the time, they didn't have any women, the newspaper I ended up writing for. And, you know, at this point in my career, I might look askance at that and kind of say, well, (laughs) you know, you should want me for me because I'm awesome right? Right. because of um, my gender. But at the time I was sort of a young person just starting out and any opportunity was a good one. So um, I was sort of happy to jump on that. But in in other cases, it has been a bit more tricky. I remember once a manager telling me, you know, that I should be more deferential when I talked in meetings. And I finally, I was so confused by this. We had a conversation a couple of times. I finally said, you know, what do you mean by that exactly? And he said, well, you know, maybe when you start talking, you could say, oh, I'm not really sure if this is right, but this is just one idea and sort of kind of almost sort of coaching me to apologize for my ideas before I even said them. Mm. And, you know, That was, I mean, we then had a really illuminating conversation where I basically said, as a woman, I tried really hard not to talk that way, Um, you know, (laughs) I think it undermines me, you know, and I, I think we both learned a lot from that conversation. And this is certainly a topic that comes up repeatedly when you dig into gender and communication. There just seems to be this sort of general discomfort with women speaking authoritatively. And and I'm sure you saw this last October. There was a Washington Post piece that went viral in which this this writer was translating famous sayings into how she thought a woman might have to say them in a meeting. And she described her process as you start with your thought and then you figure out how to say it as though you were offering a groveling apology for an unspecified error, which sort of sounds 
seems like the advice that that manager <laughs> was giving you. <laughs> and then in an interview you did with Therese Houston, uh, the author of How Women Decide, she talked about how we're affected by how much confidence a leader shows in decision making and communicating. So these things are very much at tension with one another. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this issue, which many of our female listeners face every time they get up to preach or lead a meeting. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that Washington Post viral piece because I read that and just laughed until I cried. It's so (laughs) hilarious. It's so spot on. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things to unpack here. One is just, I think, you know, women, if they're not already aware, you know, should remember and be aware and men too, that the women are, you know, expected to be not just as warm as men, but more warm and more empathetic than men. And so I think there are ways to do that as a leader where you, you know, that don't involve you sort of groveling and apologizing. Um, and, and it is true that women are often expected to, to be sort of more deferential and to do that kind of random female apologizing thing. But when you're in a leadership role, that that's really tough because people are looking to you for direction. They're looking to you for a certain amount of, as you said, confidence. So, uh, Therese Houston, you mentioned, um, I did interview her and she's written some stuff for us. That's definitely someone people can, can look up, um, to get more on that. Um, there's also a professor at IE business school, uh, whose name is Margarita Mayo, who, who wrote some stuff for us about this topic. And basically what she recommends, what her research has found is that when women, um, to be seen as confident have to be seen as warm and competent. Men really can just be seen as sort of competent and confident, and those sort of go together. But women do need to to make sure they have this warmth ingredient. That's not to say that men don't need it. Men will be even more effective as leaders if they have empathy and and, and warmth. Um, but women really need to make sure that they're going out of their way to, to exude a certain degree of warmth. Um, and that does take a bit more work, but, you know, ultimately the, the payoff for women there is, is pretty important. Well, and I, I think we're seeing this certainly at play in the presidential election that's going on right now. Eight years ago when Hillary ran one of the biggest criticisms was, you know, are, are very sort of dog whistly gender words like harsh and things like that. But since then, she's become a grandmother and everyone says, oh, well, that's humanized her so much and she softened so much. I mean, this is just one kind of blaring example in the news. Is this something that you feel like you have a more sensitive radar to pick out? Definitely, definitely. I think the more that people do research and and sort of dive into these issues and familiarize themselves with what's out there, the more that you'll be able to sort of pick up on those silent dog whistles because you will just start seeing it everywhere. I think, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's impossible to watch the presidential election unfold without realizing how, how gendered it, it is. And I even, you know, people like myself who are familiar with the research, you know, we're not immune to the biases. So I have noticed, for instance, when Hillary talks Sometimes she's sort of shouting over a crowd and I have this little internal voice that's sort of like, God, why is she shouting? She just sounds so shrill. And then I'm like, oh, that sexist voice. Like, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to sort of watch this, but also sort of pay attention to, to sort of those inner voices. And, and you know, because because we're raised in this sort of soup of expectations uh, that are 
you know, moderated by gender and by race and um, all kinds of things, class, religion. And, you know, it's important to know sort of what baggage you're coming in with. Is there is there anything in the articles that you've edited, the research that you've studied that has surprised you, either because you felt like it was something that maybe we were over and past, but it still exists, or anything that you just was sort of outside of your initial worldview? That's interesting. Um, so definitely... I mean, one of the things that I have been, frankly, surprised by is a lot of the research on um, the bias that mothers face, specifically in the workplace, mm. because, you know, it seems like there's more and more sort of research, recent research coming out that shows that um, for women, a lot of the career stuff starts going off track when they have children, and, and especially if they have more than one child. Yeah. Um, and that's something that's really been surprising to me, both because it seems like we actually have made progress in some ways because younger women and childless women are tracking more closely uh, with men's career paths and men's pay levels. But it's also just shocking to me that we still have this strange inability to see that a woman can be a mother and work at the same time and, and sort of do a good job at both. So that's been surprising to me. And there's this double standard too. I, I've read in one of your articles about how when a father decides to leave the office earlier, so they're applauded as if this is like the greatest decision they've ever made. You know, it's, it's so, it, they're such a great person for taking time off to be with their family. There certainly is a double standard there. There is a double standard there. That's actually the, the research on fathers and men is so fascinating to me. Um, because on the one sense, yes, you're right. You know, when men have a kid, you generally see their, their earnings go up and they do tend to let, get a ton of credit for going to like one soccer game over the course of, you know, their child's entire <laughs> yeah. high school career or something. Um, but the other thing is, you know, men can, can actually face even more of a backlash if they're mm. seen as too nurturing because it's sort of expected for women, right. To be sort of putting their kids first and mm -hmm. being soft and, and comforting, but a man who is seen as sort of too feminine in that respect will get a huge backlash, um, more than, than a woman. So one of the studies was done on paternity leave and men who took paternity leave were really penalized in this study, um, because it's seen as something so, you know, outside the norm. So these, these gender biases really cut against men too. That's interesting. I actually have a friend who, uh, just began paternity leave and, uh, it, it has been for, for him to some degree, a challenge as well, even in the church where, you know, you would expect folks to think of family first, uh, Having kids is hard. <laughs> it is hard. Well, and it's also, it's funny. It's a very American um, orientation, this idea that work is really the center of your life and everything else has to be sort of squeezed in around it. Um, and, you know, I think there's sort of, there's some real benefits to being passionate about your job and feeling like your job is a calling. And then there's also some downsides to that as well when it comes to sort of personal balance and, and other things that we value. Yeah, absolutely. Well, back in September 2013, you collected various articles showing the challenges that women face as they pursue career advancement. And I found it really interesting that we talk about leadership as this iterative process. So you take on a challenge, you learn and you grow, and then you repeat it with bigger challenges. And you wrote 
this, that for women, this process is often interrupted for a simple reason. When women display leadership behaviors we consider normative in men, we see them as unfeminine. And when women act more feminine, we don't see them as leaders. And this is obviously a major flaw both in the church and in the business world, only responding to stereotypical male leader models positively. And, and understanding that this question is probably asking you to overgeneralize, are there characteristics that you feel women can specifically bring to the table in areas of leadership or communication that you see as valuable? Yes. So um, again, this is a bit of a generalization, but there is research on this that shows that women who are um, leading teams or part of teams, those teams tend to communicate more than teams that are predominantly male or all male. Um, And this has to do with just women are sort of it's not, I'm not sure it's innate, you know, it's very hard to separate um, nature and nurture in these kinds of studies, sure. but um, could be socialization. But the women seem to do a better job at sort of getting everyone on the team to talk and everyone on the team to get on the same page. And there is a, a fair amount of, of research done by Herminia Ibarra, who really is the person who came up with this idea, as far as I'm aware of, that leadership is this sort of iterative process. She also has done research on sort of women in leadership and has found that this sort of consensus-driven style is actually really popular. Um, It's more popular than the traditional, quote-unquote, male hierarchical style of just giving orders. It does take a lot more time, um, and it does take a lot more sort of effort on the part of the leader, um, but it is something that that people seem to to value. So I would say that that sort of consensus building seems to be something that women have been socialized to do more, are therefore better at doing, and it does improve team performance. The the teams that have more women on them have better results than, than the teams that are predominantly male. So even though we sort of have in our mind this idea of this this authoritative leader that they set the vision and the tone and, and then everyone else follows, actually people in in settings tend to respond better to, to group consensus and communication. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Um, and I think one of the, the best things that, that I hope comes out of more women going into leadership positions is that we can sort of get away from this idea that there's only one way to lead, that it's very sort of hierarchical, that it involves giving orders. There's a lot that's wrong with that leadership approach. There's a lot of cases where that doesn't work very well. And I think we tried for, you know, 20 or 30 years to get women to sort of pretend to be men um, by coaching them to sort <laughs> yeah. of be a certain way. And and that's not working. And, and people don't really want that anyway. So maybe as more different types of people go into leadership, maybe we'll get a broader view of what leadership can look like. Well, and this uh, maybe shows a little bit of of my bias in the church world, but it seems like a lot of the largest churches in the nation, whether it's in my denomination or just sort of the famous ones that you see out there, they are they are very, very large, and they're led by sort of this male figure that sets the vision, and very few people question. And but you don't see too many women leading very large churches or even very large organizations. Is there some sort of evolution or transformation? Because as as an organization gets larger and you get higher and higher up the chain, I would imagine that it becomes harder to lead by consensus, or is it still keeping the consensus just within those upper levels? I guess what I'm asking is, is there some sort of uh, extra 
thing that women leaders would have to think about in leading extra sort of large organizations? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that's probably a great question to apply to all leaders, male or female. I mean, definitely leading a big organization is different from leading a small one. I also do think, um, yeah, at this super senior level at a big organization, you're building consensus among, you know, your executive committee, not necessarily among the 10,000 people who work for you. But I think some of the other things sort of exuding warmth and and confidence together, you know, some of that stuff remains remains the same. Are there any examples of of women leaders uh, of any size organization that you really look to and admire and feel like that they do this well? Oh my goodness, there are so many. Um, I mean, I think, right, everyone's probably first example at this point is Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's just done a phenomenal job of A, doing her job, and B, doing it while now being a single mother, and C, you know, doing all of the above while also being a role model to women outside her organization. Um, and if you sort of watch her public speeches, I think that gives you a good sense of what it looks like when a woman is sort of both authoritative and warm, um, is empathetic and extremely competent. So I think that um, she's a great she's a great example. And then, you know, a lot of the authors I work with are, are you know, in a similar position. It's super smart, extremely competent, very experienced, very articulate, and, and sort of good at... Um, uh, you know, sharing their knowledge with others and, and teaching others. So I am fortunate to, to come into contact with a lot of these women every day. And uh, lately I've been getting into Malcolm Gladwell's new series of podcasts called Revisionist History, and he did a, a series on uh, higher education. And one of them was about recruitment of very talented and bright students by colleges and how sometimes colleges have in their mind that they have tapped the full resources, that they have looked everywhere they can, that they've gotten all of the good students. And he kind of shows that that that's not the case. Do you feel like people uh, like Sheryl Sandberg are um, outliers? Is she ahead of the curve? Or are there plenty of women that you feel know these skills and have learned these skills and are just sort of uh, suffering from being on the wrong side of the boardroom door at this point as far as numbers of opportunities? Oh, I think there's a tremendous number of women out there who could do what she does. I mean, you know, I I think it's interesting to me. I I was reviewing a a new white paper um, the other day that had quotes from women in a very different industry, the financial services industry. And it was sort of about um, the glass ceiling in the financial services industry. But I remember one quote really stuck out at me from all the interviews the researchers had done. Um, And the quote was, all of the women in senior levels at our company are exceptional. You know, some of the men are exceptional, <laughs> but a lot of them are sort of just okay. Like literally all of the women are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably true if you look around, you know, any industry uh, right now. The women you see at the top are amazing. Uh, they're sort of beautiful and well-dressed and incredibly well-spoken. And, you know, they never say like or um even. You know, they're almost like robots. You think, <laughs> yeah, wow, I could never be that perfect. And then the, the men have a few more wrinkles and rumples and, you know, maybe human flaws and foibles. Um, so I, I think that that probably, you know, my sense is that there is a huge reservoir of, of untapped female talent out there that, that we will be 
that we will have to draw on if we want to stay competitive, you know, in a global marketplace. Uh, I, well, I, I, I suspected that you would answer that way, and I'm glad you did. I feel the same <laughs> way about the church world. I feel like we have so many amazing people. I worked in college campus ministry for six years, and, and no offense to the guys I pastored, but, you know, a lot of the female students were some of the brightest and hardest working and sharpest women, and, and many of them are now in seminary, and I'm so excited to see them becoming pastors. It, I feel like there's a really bright future, and let me, uh, let me ask you as as for, for myself and my fellow male listeners, do you have any advice for us on how to best support our female colleagues and leaders? Maybe are there things you wish we were more aware of or things that we would say or do? Or maybe on the flip side, and this is perhaps the more important question, are there things that some of us say and do that we think are helpful but might not actually be helpful? Um, those are both great questions. And I have to say to any male listeners who are still listening at this point, you know, you're already halfway there. I mean, the fact that you care about this topic enough, um, and that you're sort of willing to ask a question, I think is, is a great sort of mindset to be in. I think, uh, a couple of things, I think when it comes to sort of things men can do and maybe avoid doing, I think one thing to, to maybe hesitate before doing is giving too much coaching or feedback on women's communication styles because mm-hmm. Uh, the research shows that women get a ton of feedback on communication styles, and it's often sort of contradictory. It's sort of, oh, well, don't undercut yourself, but also be, you know, be nice, um, you know, and, and trying to walk. Joan Williams, um, a professor I've worked with a number of times, calls this the tightrope, and it's really tough to walk that tightrope as a woman when you're getting all this conflicting advice about your communication style. Instead, you know, I'd say focus on the, the goals, focus on the outcome, you want um, men get much more uh, feedback on their um, on actual business goals than women do. So I would say, you know, give good specific feedback to all your employees, but make sure that when you're when you're giving feedback to your female employees, um, you're giving them the same kind of good outcome focused feedback that you give to men. And I, I know this is tough. There's been other sort of research out there that, that shows that, that men especially feel sometimes weird giving feedback to women because they don't want to seem sexist. Mm. Um, but everyone needs developmental feedback if they're going to get stronger. So um, I'd say, you know, proceed, you know, even if it feels um, weird um, <laughs> and, and keep that feedback focused on the outcomes, you know, rather than sort of, oh, well, you know, you just seem a little shrill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keep that focus on, on outcomes. When related to feedback, um, this has been something that I've thought about a while and I, I didn't come up with that. I, I read about it other places, but, and, and I think that it probably exists in the business world as well as the church world, but it's certainly in the church world. And that is that when male leaders spend a lot of time pouring into a female employee, or I'll, I'll put it this way. Sometimes male leaders almost seem to fear being seen or having one-on-one sessions or giving as many opportunities for female leaders to learn from them because of the appearance of impropriety or this fear that, you know, suddenly your female employee is just going to fall over head over heels in love with you. And so, you know, there's this, uh, you know, men don't be in a room alone with women, even though sometimes one-on-one coaching is important. Is this, is this also present in the business world or have we sort of uh, held on to something that is dying away in other areas? Oh, it's definitely still present in the business world. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because so one of our authors, Sylvia Ann Hewlett, actually studied this and found that, yes, um, men are in the business world are sort of worried about 
the appearance of impropriety being alone with their female mentees. Um, there are some useful ways around it. So, for instance, if you are, I don't know how common this is in the, in the church world, but um, in business, it's common to take your employees out for drinks after mm-hmm. work. Um, yeah. and, we, do, we do coffee, but that's that's cool too. Okay, okay. Um, but basically, you know, if you have a female employee, you don't want to hang out with her at night because that seems like it might be like a weird sort of pseudo date situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do breakfast together instead, or mm. go for a run together instead of doing you know a meal. If, if sitting across the table from a woman feels like a date, mm. uh, so I'd say you know, yes, this is a this is actually a problem. Um, in a lot of, of organizations too, where, where the, the men who have, you know, responsibility for developing employees feel like, uh, I can do this with the guys, but when it comes to the women, it kind of seems weird. So, but you know, there are creative ways people can get around that. Yeah. And, uh, before we jump into a set of questions that we have for all of our guests, I guess my last question uh, specifically on this topic would be, do you have any words of encouragement, uh, or any last things that you would like, uh, the female, uh, preachers and church leaders out there to hear? Sure. Um, I'd say, you know, what, what seems to work for women in the world of business, which I primarily study, is just staying focused on your purpose and not getting distracted by even well-meaning advice from other people on how you come across. I mean, to some extent, we all have to think about that, but so much of the, the feedback that we get is about how we come across. Um, and while that is important for all leaders to think about in some ways, I think for women, we get so much of it, it can just be overwhelming. So I'd say in those moments, you know, think about what your goals are, think about what your purpose is, um, and just keep your eye on the prize and, and do what you have to do to, to keep moving towards that. That's great. I, I talked to some of my female colleagues and I asked them, what's, you know, the number one thing that you kind of struggle with? Uh, and they say, you know, off the top of my head, honestly, the most feedback I get about my sermon is usually about what I was wearing or how my hair looked rather than what I actually said. And yeah. so I like this idea of staying focused on the mission, staying focused on your purpose, what you were called to do, because eventually you're going to break through because people are going to see that that's what you care about. Well, and in my experience, you know, as a female sports writer, like the first year, everyone was talking about what I looked like in my headshot photo. And the second year, no one cared. So Mm. like eventually people get used to you and they forget sort of to see you as a woman. They just see you as a person. That's great. We do have a set of general questions that we ask all our guests, and I've adapted them slightly uh, for you since you're outside of the ministry context. We normally ask about folks' favorite preaching or most challenging preaching experiences, but for you, how about just general forms of communication or leading? Are there any experiences that you particularly love or any that you found extra challenging? Well, I will say that um, in my job, I have to deliver a fair amount of bad news. Um, Part of my job is to consider articles for publication and then get back to authors and tell them, yes, we'll move ahead and edit your piece or no, I'm sorry, this isn't a fit for us. Mm. Uh, And it just never really gets easier to deliver the bad news. Um, And that's true. You know, we were talking about feedback earlier too. That's also true sort of giving feedback. I think, you know, I like my job because I like being nice to people. (laughs) It's really tough to do that when you're rejecting someone's idea. So I'd say that's, that's always a tricky one. Yeah, that's a double-edged sword. Getting to to tell someone they're going to be an HBR or letting them know that not you know not at this time. That's got to be hard. Well, and it's funny. A friend of mine is a, a an antiques appraiser, and he has been asked many times to be on Antiques Roadshow, and he keeps saying no because he said you can't imagine how difficult it is to tell someone that their treasure is worthless. Mm. And I'm like, 
No, I do that every day. (laughs) 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 I hear you. Uh, Who have been some of the most impactful communicators in your life and why? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I'd say my dad has been actually a huge one. Um, He is someone who always manages to somehow stay calm. I think I've seen him lose his temper maybe three times in three decades. Um, And that is a trait I admire. I take after my my mom more. We're a little bit more fiery on that side of the family. Um, But so I'd say um, seeing someone who can stay calm and, uh, you know, be a sort of steady ship in a storm is, is something I, I always admire. Do you have any books that have been influential on your approach to your work or communication? Yes. Um, so one that I really recommend is by Holly Weeks. Uh, it's called Failure to Communicate. And she really talks about having these difficult conversations and sort of equips the reader with tools they can use uh, when, you know, conflict is, is high and tension is high. And so one of the metaphors she uses is like, be, you know, you're supposed to be like a parkour racer. This is like the sport. At the beginning, I didn't know what it was until I saw there's like a James Bond movie where you see the opening sequence is yeah. like running up a crane. That's what this is. And basically, she's just sort of like, that's what you have to do in a difficult conversation. You're sort of running over all these obstacles, but you're always moving towards a goal. And I think, you know, her book, Failure to Communicate by Holly Weeks, it's just a great book. It's really changed how I think. That's great. And finally, if there are any listeners out there that would like to follow your work or connect with you online, is there a good place to do that? Yes. Um, so I am on Twitter at SK Green, S-K-G-R-E-E-N. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, you know, you can find all my stuff on hbr.org um, if you just search for my name. But yeah, I'd love to connect with any of your listeners who are interested. Great. Thank you so much for being here today, Sarah. We really appreciate your time and wisdom. Thank you so much for the great questions. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 22 of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they go live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Our next episode is scheduled to go live on September 1st, and so in just two weeks, we'll be joined by worship artists All Sons and Daughters, where among other things, we'll dig into their upcoming new album, Poets and Saints. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.